Praise God. Praise God. Thank you guys for worshiping. That's awesome. There's a reality in God that we can touch regardless of the circumstances in our lives and in the world around us. And so that was awesome. Thank you. Thanks. Amy, how are you guys feeling? I know you were down with a fever or something. Feeling better? The same. All right. So we'll forgive you for not jumping up and jumping up and down at that last song then. I... Can you hear me? Yeah, real well. Can you hear me or no? Yes, we can. Okay. Our internet is slow tonight. Jeremy is still feeling pretty rough. Okay. Um, I'm doing better, and, and Ian is getting there. Okay. But the younger two are still totally healthy. So Praise God. Okay. We're keeping protection over them. Yeah, yeah. Well, Lord, we just continue to extend healing over uh, Jeremy and Amy, Ian, and, and their family, and keep them that way. So we just release healing in Jesus' name. We thank you, Father, that we can come to you on their behalf. It doesn't matter that they're halfway across the country. We thank you for the release of healing and restoration into complete health into the Skinner family in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amy, are you are your kids going to be on? Laurel's asking. Okay. Okay. All right. Cool. Hello, Ronnie. So Ronnie stayed home as a courtesy tonight. He had a little bit of a cold. He didn't want to scare anybody, thinking it was something more than that. So uh, praise God. I saw somebody coughing in the supermarket. I really freaked out. Well, you know, I, uh, I, there's a lot of reasons to cough when it's 24 degrees outside and you're, you know, hoofing around. And I coughed once today, and I felt like a terrorist. <laughs> So it was a rough, rough situation. Yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. Uh, there really is. So, and I, I was listening to some folks talk about um, with the schools closing, it makes it more serious to them, and I can certainly understand that. And I guess the governor has—is uh, it a voluntary or a mandatory thing where if you have gatherings of over 250 people, he's asking you not to do? Is it mandatory? So yeah, there's some precautions being taken. I'm glad that we're online. And uh, we'll be able to stay online, I think, unless there's our computer gets a virus, then that would be a problem. We're going to have an Ascension after services tonight, so I encourage you to stay. And if you guys want to participate in the Ascension, just let me know before we go. And uh, depending on the number that we have staying, we can do it in that other room and just set it up like we do the Tuesday study so everybody can participate in here. So, well, praise God. Okay. Um, Blessings to those of you that are that are online. Thanks for coming, and those of you that are here. And Father, we just pray for anybody that's uh, just being safe out there or staying away. That's we love them. We, we ask that you'd bless them and be with them this evening. Uh, Father, I know a lot's going on. On some of the other fronts, we have the conference coming up this week, and it's under the 250 range. So I think that's probably still going to go on. We'll uh, we'll look at some announcements about that later. But Lord, thank you, thank you for loving us and and. Uh, Caring about the details of a situation like this one we find ourselves in, and, and as Laurel said, in strange, strange things in our in our lives, in our nations. So it's really weird seeing uh, whole rows at Walmart and stores like that empty of empty shelves with the toilet paper and stuff like that. And I thought I'd be clever and go try to get some of that biodegradable stuff you use for your motorhome in the camping section, but it was gone too. <laughs> so somebody was clever like me in the first place. Uh, I think everybody here knows about Tithely, but there it is. And uh, we appreciate your support and giving, and God blesses it, so that's awesome. So we're going to look uh, a little more closely at, at the God who shapes our future. Last week we took a look at it. I'm going to do just a couple of slides of review, and then um, this is kind of a put-your-thinking-cap-on thing, and let's see what's going on. So here's, here's that review. Reasons to trust God's role in our futures. And that, that's pretty relevant right now. I mean, I was thinking a lot more about the very last things, about heaven and hell, about eschatology, about rapture and all that kind of stuff when I was first putting this together. But obviously there's a lot of folks that are afraid of next week now, next month, you know, and seeing what's going on. So this is a good one. So we just were looking at some of these things. And this first slide I, I want to talk to you about in review, the uh, the issue of trusting the Lord. Look at what it says. It says, how blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. 
And uh, I, I brought it up just a tiny bit last time, but there's just so much misinformation flowing around, so much fear-based information. This is a really practical piece of advice. But don't. Ju- it's not just that we trust the Lord, that we make the Lord our trust. So that's a big one. Uh, the next one is, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. That's even more personal. And we have the ability to make the Lord the actual object of our trust. Not just that he's going to do something, but the actual object of it. And um, the next one, Riley, are we going to get the Promethean board up there so they can see these? Oh, you've been switching? Okay, good. Uh, so behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid for the Lord. God is my strength. Oh, also, we had some questions on Zoom. Let me interrupt this. About the words getting truncated, and almost for sure it has to do with the aspect ratio or the zoom in on the device you're watching it on. So if you could check that and maybe back out, you should be able to see it. Sometimes when a phone's vertical, it'll uh, crop or something, because we check the settings on our end. So anyway, but he has become my salvation. This is the other thing, too. You know, salvation is an example of something that we think about... um, coming from God, but not God himself being that. And so the more we relate to that, the more I think it stirs us in the right direction. And this one, but as for me, I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the loving kindness of God forever and ever. Okay. So these were, these were just scriptures that provoked us to put our faith in God, our trust in God. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. Now, that's the truth, whether we believe it or not. But if we choose to believe it, it makes a big difference. And then here's that beautiful one in Micah. Who is a God like you, who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He does not retain his anger forever. Now, we're going to see in some verses that we're going to look at today because we're going to go a little bit more in depth, we're going to see that anger can be and is something that God experiences. And I know for me personally, you know, uh, I was kind of on the road to to the focusing on the goodness of God, which I think is an appropriate road to be on. And we were studying as a church a few years ago about the children of Israel before they crossed over into Jordan. Uh-oh! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, before the children of Israel were crossing over to Jordan. And, uh, and, and God kind of broke in on my study one time and said, you know, Larry, you have to let me be angry with those people. I said I was angry with them for a generation. But look how I treated them when I was angry. I fed them. I protected them. made their clothes not wear out. And uh, so anyway, it was cool. So, but this idea, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. And uh, yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. That's a really poetic verse that comes out of this section. You know, a lot of people talk about it. The last one's this beautiful one in Isaiah. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace. This is something we're experiencing today. Is an instability of our thinking, a lack of, a lack of steadiness and trust, and all of a sudden we become vulnerable to whatever is said about, about what circumstances are going to be like. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. So that was kind of the position that we took last week. Let's just try to refocus a little bit on the nature of who God is. Uh, so I want to. The mic's open if you want to come up and ask something or on Zoom. Do you need? Do you need to refocus your expectation of the future on God Himself, or are you pretty much set there? Or in, okay, so what are the alternatives that would cause a, an answer? You know, maybe I need to do something different. Um, if you're counting on having everything laid out right in your head, you need to refocus on God himself because you're not going to have everything laid out right in your head. The very nature of apocalyptic literature is when somebody tells you, I know exactly what this chapter in Revelations means. No, they don't. <laughs> in a sense, in a sense, think about it. When, when God gave Daniel that revelation, you know, he said, seal up this book until the appropriate time. And so there are reference points in the life of those hearing it, that, that really have to come to pass. There's no way. I mean, we can look back and see that Daniel's prophecy almost counted to the day, the birth of Jesus, and then the crucifixion and so on. It's an amazing set of prophecies if you go back and look at them. But looking forward to that, all of the people that were studying Scripture, the Pharisees, all those people, because they were leaning on, in, in a sense, in their own understanding of that, or trying to make it come out. And you can get that some in the Gospel, as Caiaphas said, look, uh, 
does anything come out of Nazareth? The Messiah comes from Bethlehem. Well, the Messiah did come from Bethlehem. They just didn't know it, you know, because they didn't have the reference points. So one would be trusting in your knowledge of what's coming instead of trusting in the Lord. And that's a misplaced kind of, you know, it can border on being idolatrous. It can, because it's a non-relational thing. And so I think, I mean, I try to understand Scripture as hard as anybody I know, but I really have learned in the last half decade, which sounds like a long time instead of saying five years, that's kind of a cool expression, I think I'll use that more. The last half decade, in the last five or six years, I have learned it is way more significant to trust the Lord himself than to try to have confidence that I have everything understood correctly. The other thing that does is it makes you quit looking and quit dialoguing, and then you can end up kind of getting stuck. Uh, any other any other thoughts about things that would cause you to have to refocus? If you're afraid, because if your heart's set on the Lord, that will work against fear in your life. And if, if you don't know you're loved, that's another one, because perfect love casts out fear. So... Any others? Yeah, Tim. Yeah, go ahead and go to the mic. I'll write it up here. Well, I was just thinking something that uh, causes us to refocus a lot, really, is a lot of the, the new teaching that's coming out, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, for instance, the, the ascension, uh, all the emphasis that you had on God's love. God's love's not new, but maybe the way we looked at God in the past is different than the way we look at him now. So I'm thinking, you know, Ascension, I mean, for this conference that's coming up, you know, uh, this next week here, you know, the restoration of all things, you know. So there's just so much, yep. that, so much that's come out in the Ascensions even. So, you know? so you're saying that when you, if you keep your focus on God because it's a living relationship, then yeah. you're open to new things and to learn yeah, new absolutely. things. Yeah, that's absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. I couldn't if I wasn't. Right, right. Anybody else before we go on? Anything? How many here feel like you have a serious case of needing to refocus on God? That would be a, raising your hand for a negative thing. How many feel like you have a, a pattern of making sure that you stay focused on God? That's good. All right, so we're going to look at God with another level of trust then, okay? Because you guys are open to that, everybody. Ronnie, did you want to say anything? No, you're good? Excellent, Okay. So here is a self-revelation of God and of God's heart. And when I say self-revelation, I mean it's one he says. So I, I reached out, Holly, to the uh, Jewish Bible, the Jewish Bible, because I like the way it distinguished between uh, Adonai and Yahweh and Yahweh. Uh, anyway, Adonai descended in the cloud. Now, the, the background of this story, guys, this is when Moses took the other tablets up after he destroyed them in his frustration over the golden calf. He took the two tablets up and he met with God on the mountain. And, um, and so it, it says, Adonai descended in the cloud and stood with him there. Now, stop and just think about that for a second. Is that not amazing the way this is translated? Because some, some of the translations, you don't, when it's just God, 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 you don't pick out what it is. I, you know, I love I love thinking and, and conceptualizing God in Trinitarian form and, and in relational form as the Father relating to the Son and all this kind of stuff. So when when you have Adonai standing there with Moses and then you have Yahweh passing in front and declaring being made in names, it's just a beautiful picture anyway. I thought it was cool. Adonai descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and pronounced the name of Adonai. Adonai passed before him and proclaimed... Yadhevahe, Yadhevahe, Adonai is God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in grace and truth, showing grace to the thousandth generation, forgiving offenses, crimes, and sins, yet not exonerating the guilty, but causing the negative effects of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children and their grandchildren, and even by the third and fourth generation. So this is a declaration that God makes about himself that puts us in a bit of a quandary. We had a conversation in the service and then and on Tuesday night, Tim, about does God punish us not? You know, a lot of translations here will use the word punishment. I can sort of understand where they get it from that. But I like this one uh, because it's the same thing that we studied when we studied about judgment and we were listening to Solomon's prayer and dedication to the temple. God, if we do this thing, 
let the consequences of that fall on us. But if we repent, bring us back and forgive us from this place and so on and so forth. So, but it still does. And I, 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 I want to, the reason I want to look at this passage is we will, we will set ourselves up for potential confusion if we deny God something that he actually is or does. All right. And so he himself declared that his mercy goes for uh, thousands, but he will not leave uh, others unpunished or he will not clear them is what the word actually means. He will not clear them of this. So if you get a translation that says that that's what that's talking about, it means it won't, he won't. It's, so one of the accusations about believing in a God that's too good or believing in a God without believing in his justice and love as some balancing act or holiness and stuff is, is that, um, we paint a picture of God that doesn't deal with the reality of evil in this world. But God does deal with the reality of evil. Sometimes he deals with it through patience. Sometimes he lets things run their course. Sometimes uh, he deals with it through intervention. Sometimes he deals with it, uh, you know, obviously forgiveness is a huge way that it's manifest. But I just want us tonight to be willing to let God declare who he is and to realize that there are things that people would not consider warm and fuzzy that are a part of who God is. Okay? So let me read it again. Adonai descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and pronounced the name of Adonai. There's so much in that. I mean, there's a name under which everybody, you know, it's incredible. Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Yad Vahe, Yad Vahe, Adonai is God, merciful and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in grace and truth, showing grace to the thousandth generation, forgiving offenses, crimes, and sins, yet not exonerating the guilty, but causing the negative effects of the parents' offenses to be experienced by their children and grandchildren, and even by the third and fourth generation. Okay? So just hold it in your heart for a second. We'll go on to another verse. All right. So when I was going through this and thinking about it, I started digging around in the Old Testament a little bit more than I'm used to doing and uh, realized I need to do it more. But I got into Hosea, and the story of Hosea is super interesting. You know, Hosea was a prophet. It says here, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beri, during the reigns of uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. So he served through all those kings as, as the voice of the Lord, as the prophet of the Lord. All right? So that's the context. Now, if you remember the story, we'll get into it just for a second, because I'm going to read two chapters to you, and uh, you'll just have to be patient, because they're all on the thing. This is out of the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible, because it was one I was reading, and it's got some phrases in it that are just outrageous. So it says, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said to him, all right, now this will throw you for a loop as well. <laughs> okay, so I think the Lord told me to do this. This is one of those things that if it made the news, people would think, you're nuts, Okay. Uh, when the Lord first spoke to Hosea, he said to him, Go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity, for the whole land has been promiscuously abandoning the Lord. Now, the reason I didn't stay with, one reason, that I didn't stay with the Jewish, complete Jewish Bible. Do you have a copy of it? With, you don't have to worry about it, but it, it, it's just straightforward. It says, Go after a whoring woman <laughs> who's whoring with everybody and has children as a result of her whoredom. I mean, and so it's pretty direct, you know, it's pretty funny. Uh, and and uh, one of the other reasons is there's a turn of phrase or two here that I really like the way they handled it. But when the Lord, so, so the Lord said, go and marry a promiscuous wife and have children of promiscuity for the whole land has been promiscuously abandoning the Lord. So for those of you that have been praying, oh Lord, make me a prophet, make me a prophet, you might get something like this. It's possible. God does say that kind of thing from time to time. And I wouldn't know how to, if you came to me for pastoral counsel, I would not know how to say, I don't know whether that's the Lord or not. You know, I, I, I hope you heard right. So he went and he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. And then the Lord said to him, name him Jezreel, for in a little while I will avenge the bloodshed of Jezreel on the house of Jehu or Jehu, and put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, the reason I emphasize that little line in, put an end, wow, to the kingdom of the house of Israel. 
On that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. This is, of course, when Israel and Judah were separated into two kingdoms, right? And so there was a multiple number of kings, but then uh, uh, Joash, uh, uh, Jeroboam, son of Joash, was the king of Israel for that whole time. So this was a prophecy in part. Okay, now this is many years. This is many years after God stood on Sinai and said to Moses, I'm... You know, slow to anger, loving compassion for thousands of generations, but I won't leave the guilty exonerated. All right. Now, let me back up and also say, what I'm wanting us to do is to take a close look at God with our eyes open and not have to only be okay if the only thing we see is something that we understand and can put in a little soft velveteen bag and keep it. Because one of the things that's the result of that is we're set up to not really face the world as it is. And here's here's the worst part about that. God absolutely faces the world as it is. And if we aren't, then in that area, our, our knowledge, our thoughts are not aligning with his. Okay? So uh, after Gomer had weaned no compassion, she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said, name him not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God Yet, the number of the Israelites will be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or counted. And in the place where they were told, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Look at the turnaround built in to the command, name him not my people. So this is why we cannot afford to censor the emotions, and the wisdom of God and the declarations that he makes. Because there's stuff happening. And it comes out of his heart, out of his essence, who he is. So do you see the turnaround there? Uh, The Lord said, Name him not my people, for you are not my people, and I will not be your God. Remember that phrase. Yet the number of the Israelites will be like the the, uh, sand of the sea, which cannot be measured and counted. And in a place where they were told, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. So God's got stuff going on in his planning. Stuff going on. And we got to let him have room to do that. And we need to be able to put our trust not in how we see his plan playing out, but in who he is. So I'll go way back to the beginning slides. I put my trust in the Lord. He has become my trust. So if he takes a turn in our perception that appears dark, to us, ununderstandable, confusing. We must trust him. And we can trust him. Yeah, Ronnie? Could that be considered one of those places that seems in Scripture is like almost contradicting itself? Yeah, well, I mean, the intentions of God one way versus another, I mean, he's making some pretty positive statements here. I'm not their God, and they're not going to be my people, Right? But we, if you think ahead, we know some places where he declares something entirely different to that. So yes, this is one of those examples. And, and, and what we have to do is give God room to be God. Now, I know it's difficult because that means, well, then you're, are you saying that all the negative stuff that he, that he puts stuff on people or something like that? Uh, I'm saying God is who he is and he has expressed from his heart and his essence this way. But the revelation that he gives of himself and that we have has room in it for things that we can't put in a box. And so we don't have to explain them away is what I'm saying. Okay, Because Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, we don't have to make up some weird thing that Peter was exercising apostolic authority without knowing it and actually killed him. Okay, Or because the angel of the Lord was sent across the Egyptians and slew the firstborn, We don't have to explain that away. We can just let it live for a little bit and not jump to the conclusion that our father is uh, evil or something. It's a a kind of mature-er look at God, I think. And it leaves room for God to do stuff that has to be done to deal with evil and rebellion in this world. And it gives us a reason to look at judgment as a positive thing, even if there is a disciplinary or a punishment aspect associated with it. Now, Jason and I had a call this week, and we were talking, and uh, 
he, he said something that I thought was just amazing because I, I almost boxed myself in a corner on this idea of talking about punishment or judgment when we looked at, uh, a while ago at Danny Silk's book, Unpunishable, and that concept. Now, I don't disagree with those concepts, but Jason said something that I thought was just outrageously cool. He said, you know, he was telling somebody, he was having a conversation, he said, Danny Silk wrote a book that said, uh, that uh, talked about being unpunishable, but he didn't write a book that uh, was about being unaccountable. And I thought that was a pretty good insight. So what is the accountability to this behavior that we're seeing here? And if that accountability wasn't manifest in a way similar to the way we are reading about it, what would that mean about the people of Israel? I remember when we studied the wrath of God, and in Romans, at the beginning of that chapter, uh, chapter 2 there, I, I saw that the wrath of God was revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. And I said, Lord, even mine, even though Jesus' blood washes me, even though... And he said, yes. He says, because I can't dumb heaven down to accommodate your unrighteousness. So this is a big kind of a doctrinal thing, but I I think that we have overstated the substitutionary nature of what Jesus did on the cross. He did it with us as us. He drew us to himself. He didn't do it on our behalf as if we were at a distance. And so now he's just acting as a shield, but we can still keep our corruption and believe that we can live in the glory of God. What did we come to the conclusion, Jason? It wasn't, uh, uh, it wasn't a transactional thing. It was like a moth to a flame thing. No matter how much the moth wants to argue, let me be in the flame. You can't until you're changed because you can't bear up under the flame. There's a reality to the glory of God the, uh, the consuming fire of God, that God has taken responsibility to make sure we don't talk ourselves in to getting destroyed in His presence. And I don't fully understand it. And using words like destroyed and all that kind of stuff, it's kind of scary to me, too. Anyway, it says, And the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together. Now, didn't he just say, let's back up. I thought I mis- must have misread this. Uh, the bloodshed of Jezreel in the house of Yehu and put an end to the kingdom of of the house of Israel. But now he's saying, and the Judeans and the Israelites will be gathered together and they will appoint for themselves a single ruler and go up from the land for the day of Jezreel will be great. And then it goes back and it says, look, uh, yet the number of the Israelites, now are those the Israelites from Israel? Or are those the Israelites, as we think about them, as one unified? So see, we got to give God room to work these things out. We have to give him room. I have to give him room. All right, so here comes some more warm, sort of fuzzy counsel from God. Call your brothers, my people, and your sisters compassion. And then this blue title here in, in the, the way the Holman Standard puts it, that's a, a chapter title, and I didn't want, to be con- didn't want it to be confused with the words. So rebuke your mother, rebuke her, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Let her remove the promiscuous look from her face and the adultery from between her breasts. Otherwise, all right, so here's our God. This is our God, our loving heavenly father, God. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and expose her as she was on the day of her birth. I will make her like a desert, a desert, a desert. (laughs) I will make her like a desert and like a parched land, and I will let her die of thirst. I will have no compassion on her children because they are the children of promiscuity. For their mother is promiscuous. She has conceived them and acted shamefully. And then he begins to give us insights into her reasoning. For she thought, I will go after my lovers, the men who give me my food and water, my wool and flax, my oil and drink. Therefore, this is what I will do, says God. I will block her way with thorns. I will enclose her with a wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers but not catch them. She will seek them but not find them. Then she will think, I will go back to my former husband. For then it was better than for me now. Think about the story of the prodigal son. Yeah. That process, that path is one that uh, has a place in the economy of God. Has a place. Now, this will make us all nervous. If I just was to stop here, that'd be a bomber team to go home and go, ah, I don't like that sermon very much. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Me too. 
And this is only because Tim and I go back and forth about this all the time. But I want you to see that this part is real. This isn't, uh, we can't write this off because, oh, that's Old Testament. God's different now. No, it's the same God. It's the same God. This is the, this is the same God. It's the same God. Let's read what's next. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. But Lord, the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. Okay, let that sit there, but let this speak too. Don't write it off. Don't explain it away. We explain away a lot of things that make us ineffective at understanding how God's doing it. And we explain away a lot of things that make us doubly ineffective at talking and being persuasive about the goodness of God and the intentions of God to people who like to have everything certain on a list because they got a bunch of scriptures like this that they can appeal to. And when we say, oh yeah, but, and we just try to wipe it away, God's lost in us a voice to communicate the reality. Okay? Um, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers, and no one will rescue her from my hands. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons, and Sabbath, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines with fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket. And the wild animals will eat them, and I will punish her for the days of the Baals when she burned incense to them, put on her rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers, but forgot me. And then this isn't a chapter break. This is a declaration, kind of like, you know, in the Psalms it says, Selah. This is what the prophet's declaring here. This is the Lord's declaration. All right. I was reading this the other day. Thinking about all this stuff. I just reading, I just reading because I need to get back and read the minor prophets, but I was reading it and I thought, wow, wow, this is pretty heavy. You know, da, 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 da. Where's this going? Here's where it's going. Therefore, I'm going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Acor, which means trouble into a gateway of hope. There, she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. The Lord's declaration. In that day, you will call me my husband and no longer call me my Baal, which means master. When I read this, I thought about Jesus standing in front of his disciples saying, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. They will no longer be remembered by their names. On that day, I will make a covenant for them with the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the creatures that crawl on the ground. And I will shatter bow, sword, and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. How do we process this kind of contrast? What does it mean about our God? If we dismiss this or we try to write it off to just some Old Testament thing or something along these lines, we're going to miss the fact that God, unlike us, does not turn away from the the raw and difficult nature of evil and rebellion. But he deals with it. But in my thinking, as we're seeing this thing, which is the disposition that defines the inclination of a heart? The first reaction or the end result? It's the end result, right? Because that's what the work is put into. And I'm not saying God had an off-the-cuff initial reaction. What I'm saying is that to deal with this harlotry, this rebellion, he had to bring these pressures to bear. He had to let them have a consequence. 
like it was talking about back on the mountain. I'm going to let these things visit these generations. Why? Because he's indifferent? No, because he's committed to their redemption. Why did the father, who we knew could run in the story of the prodigal son, because he ran to meet his son when he came home, why did the father not run to the distant land? Did he not have enough resources? Of course he did. Why did he not run to, to, to pull the child back, the son back? Because you can't pull the inside of a person back, maybe. You can't change what they're thinking until their thinking changes. That's the nature of repentance. That's why repentance is a part of everything. Not the weird kind where we have to be sorry over it and show some kind of remorse to satisfy one another. But the actual change of heart and mind about what a fool I was. Even the servants in my father's house have stuff to eat. Look at the transition that was going on with her. I think, is it here or is it back there? No, it's, it's, it's back one. Let's look at that. Uh, I will go back to my former husband, for then it was better for me than now. There's some repentance here in the story of, of Hosea. This turning begins to happen. And as a result, even though, look what he says, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. But when he comes to this part, he says, I will give her vineyards back to her. He doesn't lose sight of why he made us. His love covers us. His love defines us. He doesn't lose sight of our destiny. But when we're running in the opposite direction of our destiny headlong, he's not okay with that. He's not okay. And in a God who in, in, in nouns in the New Testament is described as love twice, light once, spirit once, and consuming fire once, there's room in his personality, in his essence. To do this, turn them into a thicket, and into wild animals will eat them. I will punish her for the days of the balls when she burned. But then it goes to this. He says, because of that, that's what this therefore means, because of that part of my being truth. And guys, I don't fully understand it. And I don't pretend at all to be able to sit here and say, oh yeah, I'll look at somebody and see this is God doing a good thing, but it's that kind of negative thing. I'm not going to do that. All I'm going to do at best is I'm going to make the Lord my trust. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to know for a fact that he's good. Okay? Um, now, interestingly, I mean, so, so do you see the turnaround? But do you see how that there's, there's nothing to be gained by ignoring the first half of this exchange? Because without the first half of this exchange, Israel's not ready to receive her vineyards back. But the object of all that ugly stuff is that she get her vineyards back. That's why God was doing it. Now, we can apply that to all sorts of things. Um, I'm not going to try to do that now because it's I'm not ready, honestly. But there's enough here to know that if there's this thing that looks negative and it looks like judgment, it looks like punishment, or it looks derogatory, or it looks like... I mean, God made some strong statements. I'm not going to be their God. They're not going to be my people. But look what it says here. On that day, I will make a covenant with them uh, for the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the creatures that crawl on the ground. I will shatter bows, sword, and weapons of war in the land and will enable the people to rest securely. I will take you as my wife forever. What a stunning turnaround. You know, I don't know what that means. Except, I know that where one time it looked like God was turning away, was separating, was letting her run with uh, her harlotries, letting the nation of Israel go that way, letting God's people go that way. And I want to be known as God's people. I don't want to usurp the title of the nation of Israel, but I want to be known. God says, he doesn't say that. You know, he says she'll call him her husband. But he says, I will take her 
as my wife. There's an affirmative assertion here. I will take you to be my wife. And then this is God talking. This is not a promise made by one of the Israelites. Forever. I don't know what to do with that. Except I can run up to Romans 9 and 10 and 11, where Paul says that all Israel is going to be saved. I don't know, you know. So what do we do with that? But there's a lot of agreement between the express purpose of God and his own words to the prophet Hosea, the demonstration of those in the, in the life of Hosea and what Paul talked about, in a way that I've never heard anybody explain adequately. So all Israel is going to be saved, you know, even though they've been cut off for the Gentiles and all this kind of stuff. And then what about us? So anyway, I will take you to be my wife forever. And then he goes into the details. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I will take you to be my wife in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. On that day I will respond. I will respond to the sky, and it will respond to the earth. The Lord's declaration echoes throughout this thing. And it says the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the oil. They will respond to Jezreel. And I'm thinking of what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 when he says, Creation was subjected to futility, not of itself, but of him who subjected it, waiting for the revelation of the glory of the sons of God. Wow. Is that related to this? I think so. I mean, I can't make you an exegetical direct comparison and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it sure sounds like that. It sounds like when God says, I'm going to make you my wife, my people, my rebellious, adultery, whoring people, forever, he's not depending on their turn. Their turn's in there, but it's a passing phrase. It's minor. He is going to do this. Or there's that passage of the Scripture. uh, I think it's in Isaiah 6. I'm not 100% sure on that. Where's, is that the one where it says the zeal of the Lord will perform this? But there's that phrase. God's own zeal is going to perform his promises. I should look that up. Uh, the earth will respond to the grain and the new wine and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will sow her in the land for myself, and I will have compassion on no compassion. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. And he will say, the little boy, not my people. He will say, you are my God. Now I'm going to take us someplace where that is significant. But how do we deal with this? Hello, Paul. How do we deal with this? Do we let God walk through this process, work through this process? so that this one who he said, you're not my bride. You're chasing after your lovers. You've got adultery between your breasts. All these rich, difficult, or like you said, harsh truths. But here's the end. The end is, I will take you, and you will call me husband. Again, I don't know how how to apply that, I don't know where to apply it, but I know this is a part of what God was saying on Mount Sinai when he said, I've got mercy for thousands, I forgive everything, thousands of generations, but I won't exonerate the guilty. And the reason is because if he were to pass over the the blood guilt, he were to pass over the uncleanness, the act of him passing over that would be their damnation in relationship to the glory that is the new heaven and the new earth. Because the scripture says in Revelation, nothing unclean can enter there. So if he doesn't deal with our uncleanness somehow, and I understand that most of us have grown up with kind of a substitutionary atonement kind of gospel thing, substitutionary atonement where Jesus is our righteousness for us. And he, he is. I don't want to deny that. But that doesn't mean that we are somehow able to move into glory without being righteous ourselves. Sonny, you asked that question. This next one we're going to get to on Tuesday night. There's Grace is the driving factor in our relationship. But it seems like there's something that is rewarded that has to do with us actually being transformed, actually changing. 
nothing unclean will go through its gates. The picture that's painted of the, the New Jerusalem and the outer darkness and the gates that are never shut, the thing that keeps people out is not the gate. And it's not like the garden where there's a cherubim standing there. There's no indication of that. The thing that which, which keeps them from going into the city where God is the light and the Lamb is their propensity to love darkness and the uncleanness that that represents in their life. And I don't know whether you can envision them strolling up near the gates and it just going, ow, that hurts. I don't want to do that. And back out into the darkness they go. I don't know. But what I see in here is that God is willing to walk with us through that which separates us, that which isolates us. It doesn't separate from Him. Isolates us. And the end result is that we are His. And He takes us to be His forever. So I'm kind of excited about that. All right. So can you see that God is working through time from who He is to respond from His heart both to the sins and the destiny of mankind? I don't know that one is different than the other to God. I don't think he operates under a fence in relationship to our our sins and under some kind of separate hope in relationship to our destiny. I think he sees our destiny when he sees our sin. And he goes into it to get us through it, to it. And that's kind of the point of what I want us to do. I feel like we're robbing ourselves of seeing the persistent love of God, the ferocious love of God, the burning, burning hunk of love of God. (laughs) If we try to sanitize the way he deals with us in relationship to our rebellion and our sin. And I'm the furthest thing from a legalist. And I'm the furthest thing from preaching hellfire and damnation to scare somebody right. That doesn't change you. What changes you is that process you read about in Hosea where all of a sudden everything you put your trust in begins to fall apart. Where all the lies you begin to believe begin to be shown for the lies that they are. And only a God of truth can do that. Only a God of truth can do that. Are you headed to the mic? Cool. So, okay. So that is the point that I wanted to bring up, which was if you're looking at Hosea and what God is saying to the wife and the children and everything. He is a God of truth, so he's actually speaking the truth of that situation. But there is, in a sense, a greater truth, which is his, you know, your original question to us, what is your expectation of God in the future? Well, he has an expectation that is the greater truth about who we are. So both things are true. And, and if we look at it that way, you know, you can, you can totally see that God's purposes in that particular circumstance with Hosea and his wife was to point out this is true about Israel and Jezreel and the children and all these different things. But even though that is a truth, there's just a greater truth, which is what he is at the end proclaiming and declaring. Yeah. And so you can, you know, the goal isn't to to stay an adulterous woman or anything like that. You know, she's going to totally embrace yeah. the the husband aspect of the father. Um, I mean, of of God and everything. So, I just think that's a cool picture of who God is. Yeah. And so, when for me, when I'm looking at things like this, you know, I can sort of get that, oh, you know turmoil thing going on in my heart and yeah. then I realize, oh, that's the same process you've taken me yeah. through yeah. in my stuff. Yeah. And so at one time I was one thing and now in the greater truth, which is God, I'm a different thing. Yeah. You know, I'm a different Absolutely. person. Absolutely. Think about this too. And, and again, I, this is kind of a um, this is kind of a, I, I suppose you could challenge this as biblical exegesis on my part. But we got, we got two pictures in, in this thing in Hosea, we have uh, adultery and we have prostitution. In the New Testament, 
looking into Jesus' life to see how the Father looks in relationship to adultery and prostitution, what do we see? We see Mary Magdalene. And we see the adulterous woman. And we see God being just as true when he's talking about these things, or thou shalt not commit adultery. The truth of him is just as seriously revealed in the person of Jesus. And it's progressively revealed in the person of Jesus when he asks that woman, are there any that condemn you? And she says, no, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Sonny? Yeah. Um, when he says the, the kindness of God leads us to repentance, and we say God is good, you know, this, this actually allows us to not try to find... Well, we try to find what the kindness is, but it allows God just to be God, to be kind and to mess with our lives. And, you know, in the end, we're going to say God is good. Yeah, we are. I mean, it doesn't really matter. And we're going to know what we're saying. Yeah, and we're going to know. And we're going to so enjoy the fact that he messed with our lives to the point to bring us who we are. Yeah. And uh, yeah. it allows God to just be good in his way. Yeah. And perfect. And it's not even a matter, it's not even a matter of, of like, oh, God is, whatever God does is good, so we have to just view that as good, so the rape of little kids is good, all this kind of, that's not what you're talking about, that's not it. I mean, it's the same way that the, the prodigal son, after this whole episode, could look somebody in the eye and say, my father is good. Not, my father was a bully and came and got me, and took me away from that cool life I was trying to live. <laughs> yeah, it's, this, this defines Goodness. This defines, and we could probably study and study and see that it defines being made in his image. It defines his honoring of our being made that image and the freedom that we have and so on and so forth. And so like Vicki and I talk a lot about, well, what about the freedom of man in relationship to the last of all things? And when Jen was here last year, she said, God doesn't always get what he wants. No, certainly in the intermediate picture, he doesn't. It wasn't his desire that Israel go running off after Baal. But it also didn't it didn't make him less God. It didn't steal from God the ability to say in the end, I will take you to the wilderness and I will woo you and you will be my, you will say, I'm your husband and I will make you my wife. If you run that up to Revelation chapter 19 and 20, you can begin to see that the hand of God is effective without being deterministic or domineering or any of those things. Yeah. So at the end, it it said down here, so I'll make a covenant, you know, where's it at there? Uh, and yeah, I'll make a covenant. So here's the covenant. This might strike you as familiar. Jeremiah, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with seeds of men, man, and with the seeds of beasts. And now, listen to this. As I have watched over them to pluck up and break down and overthrow to destroy and to bring disaster, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. And then this little phrase is cool. In those days they will not say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. And this I reflect back to what we heard God say in Sinai when he said, I will visit or I will allow the consequences of the parents' sins to come on the generations to three or to four. In contrast with, I will have mercy and I will forgive the sins of thousands of generations. So there's a place in God for this stuff. But this covenant thing that's beginning to emerge here in this promise from the prophet Jeremiah gets into some familiar territory for us. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their hearts. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Remember him saying, the one who I said, you're not my people, they'll be my people. And they'll say, 
little not my people is going to say, you're my God. That's the new covenant that is being linked here. This is what Jeremiah is prophesying. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. No matter what we do to repent, you understand that we cannot make God forgive us. We are not the cause of our own forgiveness. He is. He is driven by his choices, not by our religion. And I'm not saying we don't have responsibilities to turn, to come home. This son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. So let's live in our responsibilities, but let's do so in the awareness that we are not the ones that are going to determine what happens in the last days. God is, by his own will. And he is going to be with us in the middle of our wanderings and our rebellions to get us in that position where we can be who he declares us to be. And this links it directly with the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus held out that cup and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant is the heart of God in Hosea, revealed through the prophet Jeremiah, manifest in Jesus, enjoyed by you and me. And ultimately manifest in the end of time. Does that make sense? A lot to think about. Where do we assign value? Wherever you want. Is what we're supposed to do important? Yeah. When we're called to repent, should we repent? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But keep all of that in its perspective. Ultimately, it's the Lord. It's the heart of the Father determining the nature of all things, and particularly the end of all things. So what do we need to know to trust God with our future? I think we need to know that He's good. And that he has at his disposal everything he needs. And I don't even know what that means. Everything he needs to get us there. And he has manifest that victory in the guarantee, in the signet ring, the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit, placing Christ in our hearts, placing Christ where he was, being there with him. Jesus is the guarantee that the Father's going to get what he wants. don't know exactly what that means. Okay, you all have that. There's a conference here on Wednesday. If you got tickets, good. If not, there's a few left. Uh, we're going to be able to come on Friday, so if you're a regular Joylander, just you can come. Uh, I, I think this one's still scheduled for next May, and then we have Dan coming. Anything you want to add about Dan, Laurel? No, just tell your friends. Yep. We're in that early bird sale now, so and I understand we have a couple of the planning committee here tonight. Yes. Thank you, guys. That's awesome. All right. So, any last questions before or comments before I pray? Yeah, I would. You know, something that kind of struck. Go me. grab that. Well, this is kind of just off. Oh, okay. That's right. They'll, they'll hear it back there easier. Something like if God says, "Your name is no compassion." What I think about is, imagine the personality of that person. I mean, it, maybe it would be a person with no compassion. Yeah. yeah. And he'd be reminding everybody, like, it's so jarring yeah. about their own inner hearts. Yeah. So I just think that's kind of... Yeah. Because whatever he names, they become. That's right. Yeah. He, he called that thing platypus. Or Adam did. Yeah. Um, praise God. Praise God. This did make me, speaking of that, Sonny, uh, and this is my last comment, this made me think about, as a part of how God works toward restoration, that we receive a, a name on a white stone that no one knows. If you can get a brand new name that no one knows, how much of your former life can be done away with? If you really get that name. No compassion's name turned out to be my people or whatever, you know, I mean, that, that whole thing. So, <sighs> Father, thank you. You're bigger than we know and than we understand, but we can trust you and we can trust your goodness. 
in the times of silence, in the times of apparent darkness, in the times of discipline, even in the times if they feel like punishment or even as we listen to declarations that seem to condemn us to carry the name of no compassion or not my people. Even if our actions warrant a declaration that I will bring an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. In a few sentences, if we allow you to have your way, if we don't lose heart and we don't redefine our future as despair, we will hear you say, I will gather Israel and Judah together and I will make you my wife. You're bigger than we know, God. I pray that you allow us the grace to let you be as big as you can be. In Jesus' name, amen.